The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, this morning, guys, um, I was thinking about how to kick this whole thing off. I have like a whole intro on a page, but what ends up happening is I typically scrap it and throw it away uh, because I don't want to sound super rehearsed. And after I've read it a couple times, it no longer pumps me up or inspires me. So... I was thinking about names this morning, and I was thinking about people like Steph Curry, Gordon Ramsay, uh, Timberland, which if, you don't, if you're not like, I don't know if you're my age, you know, like he wrote a cool song with Justin Timberlake back in the day. Uh, Chris Hadfield, Serena Williams, Carlos Santana, Steve Martin. What do all these people have in common? Well, they're really, really good at their crafts. They're really good at what they do. And... I only know these names specifically because if you're watching TV or you're on YouTube or anything like that, eventually an ad will pop up for a thing called a master class. Has anybody ever seen these ads for master classes? All right, you guys don't watch TV. You're good. Okay, perfect. It's cool. Like Steph Curry will be there with a basketball and he's like, hey man, come online. You can take this course. You can pay to take this course where I'll teach you how to shoot a basketball and dribble. We all know that won't actually work. If you can't ball, you can't ball. You probably should stop trying. But anyways, they take your money. So Steph Curry teaches that class. Gordon Ramsay, of course, teaches cooking. Serena Williams, tennis. Steve Martin, comedy and and acting. But you guys... If you haven't seen these ads, it's always intriguing because you look at them and you're like, wow, I wonder what I could learn from these masters of their crafts. I wonder what I could learn. The reason why I bring this up today is I feel like master class is a great title for what we're about to see in Acts chapter 17. I feel like what we're about to see is like a missionary master class. We get to see Paul and his crew, Silas and Timothy, they get to visit three different cities, and we're going to see how Paul interacts with the people of the cities. We're going to see how Paul brings the gospel into different cultures, into different spiritual climates, and I think we have a lot to learn from doing that. So, again, if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 17, if you're not there yet, flip there. I want to pray real quick one more time, and I want to jump into the scriptures, because we have 34 verses to cover today. God, would you humble us this morning to be able to hear from your word? And not just hear, but Lord, let the instruction and wisdom of your word, Lord, sink deep down into our hearts to change us. God, would you give us wisdom, Holy Spirit, would you work in this place and in our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, here we go. Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, I don't know how to say these words, by the way, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. We'll stop there for just a second. 
This is really cool because first off in the first stop, Thessalonica, what does Paul do? Well, as has been his custom up to this point, he goes to the synagogue, right? If you guys remember, Paul was a Jew. He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. He was trained under Gamaliel. This guy was an awesome, awesome Jew, if you would. So he knows the Old Testament scriptures very, very well. And he knows when he goes to the synagogue that he's going to find a lot of people or Jews that think like him, that knew the Old Testament scriptures like him. They had something in common. So he finds what we're going to call today his first point of contact, right? He's really well versed in the Old Testament scriptures and knows all the customs and laws and commandments of the Old Testament. So he goes straight to the synagogue. He opens the Bible. And what does he do? He starts reasoning with the Jews there and he starts explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead. Now, this is important, guys, because as you know, right, it's easy to know the scriptures. It's possible to know the scriptures, but not know Jesus, right? Satan's the perfect example of this, right? He uses the word to be deceitful and manipulative, and he uses it to lie to believers. And so he knows the word of God probably really, really well, yet he's not submitted to Jesus as Lord, and that makes all the difference, So Paul, again, walking into the synagogue, this is super important because he knows that these Jews know the Old Testament and they have heard the promises of the coming Messiah, yet they didn't know or haven't known up to this point that that Messiah, the promised Savior that the Old Testament talks so much about, is Jesus. So he goes in there, opens the Bible, and right off the bat, just like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, he started looking over the Old Testament scriptures, and he started showing them how the scriptures point to Jesus. Knowing the Bible and the truths therein doesn't get you into heaven, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. So he points to the fact that Jesus, the one he's proclaiming to them, is the Christ. Again, some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few leading women, but verse 5, the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Brent mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and and quite frankly, we've seen this a lot as we've studied the book of Acts. But when you preach the gospel, one of two things happens, right? It's pretty divisive. Some people believe, and in this story, some people get angry. They get mad. So mad, in fact, that they start hunting them down and they know that they're staying at this dude Jason's house so they go to Jason's house and they can't even find Paul and Silas there but they're so angry at this word that was preached that they decide to just yank Jason out and get him in trouble so man the best way I've heard this put is is by a guy named Brother Yun he's a house church leader up in China um, he said when the, when the true gospel is preached in power you get either revival or riot you get either revival or riot And as I was studying this, I was thinking about this, guys. As we see these Jews 
get jealous, and they go and find some, some people in the marketplace, guys that really didn't have anything to do with this situation. They formed a mob, and there's this huge uproar, and they're just like seeking out blood. Well, why in the world do they do that when somebody comes proclaiming a message of grace, mercy, love, and eternal life? And as I was thinking about this, one thing came to mind, and, and it's this. We cannot underestimate the wickedness of the human heart. You can't. Satan's grip, the flesh's grip, the hardness of heart that people have pre-Christ is absolutely devastating. And again, it's easy to read this and be like, oh, these Jews missed it. Gosh, they're so lame. And I was like, no, no, that's not it at all. But instead, the Bible has so much to say about our attitude as we're proclaiming the gospel to people that aren't receiving it, that have a hard heart. We're to do it in humility. We have to understand that they are stuck. The Bible says in, in Romans, let's see if I can find it. I'm not actually looking at my notes, which is probably a good thing, but now I'm lost, so that's fine. Uh, Romans six seventeen says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So what does that mean? Well, those who oppose the gospel, those who haven't been made new, they're not free but instead they're slaves to sin they're stuck and they don't even know it so when the good news of Jesus is preached right their hearts are so hard that they want nothing to do with it because as they're slaves in sin as they're stuck in that what happens is when they hear about a Lord when they hear about a master or a Christ they don't want to submit their lives to anybody else they like being their own God they like their sin but here's the thing too and Paul says it. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, who he's talking about? He's talking about Christians. Right? So now I can have this attitude of humility, not one of pride, like I'm better than everybody else who doesn't believe because, oh, they don't believe and I do. No, no, no. I was a slave to sin just like them. I need to be looking at them with mercy, with understanding. I need to come and serve them in love, gently proclaiming the truth of God in boldness, pointing him to the Christ, knowing that I'm not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities. Guys, there's an intense, dark, deep, spiritual battle going on for souls that we get to witness like right here in Acts 17. And, and if you guys are honest, you've probably witnessed this in your own lives as well with yourself Right, If you can think back to before you knew Christ, what your attitude was towards the gospel. Or maybe right now, people that you know that are hard-hearted and, and in rebellion against submitting to Jesus as the Christ. But again, we get to see that in, in the hardness of heart. Human beings should not be underestimated. It's in desperate need of God to do a miraculous work. So we'll continue on. They're so mad that when they couldn't find Paul and Silas in verse 6, they dragged Jason, some of the brothers, before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. They've come here also. Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Thessalonica, first stop in the city, 
Paul goes to the synagogue, opens the Bible, talks to Jews. He knows what their life is like, right? He's able to, able to uh, chat with them about things that they know, come down to their level. And he points to the Christ. Some get saved, some riot. Next up, verse 10, this is the city of Berea. It says, when all this stuff went down, when there was a riot and a mob, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. You guys see a pattern here, okay? Jeremy mentioned this. When there's a synagogue, Paul goes. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, not a few Greek women of high standing as well, but when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who were conducted Oh, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. They departed. So Berea, very similar, uh, very similar to Thessalonica. We see that a lot of the Jews there, it even goes out to point out that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So they were more open to hearing the word that Paul proclaimed. And what did they do? They didn't just take his word for it, but instead they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So again, Jews that knew Old Testament commandments and laws and statutes, all of a sudden they have this guy telling them that the fulfillment of all these promises is none other than Jesus Christ. So what do they do? Instead of just rejecting it right off the bat, they start to examine the scriptures. And I love this because it says after they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, many of them therefore believed. You guys know about therefore. When you read it in the scriptures, you have to figure out what it's there for, right? So you look at this and it's almost as if a a big group of these people got saved because they were examining the scriptures, Right? Countless testimonies. I'm sure we've all heard of people who didn't know Jesus but had a Bible laying by their bed or had a Bible tucked away in a drawer and they start opening the scriptures and through the scriptures, through examining the scriptures, these, these words, this book that is living and powerful, God opens the eyes of the unbeliever and brings people to repentance and faith in him. The scriptures are indeed powerful but then again the people the Jews from Thessalonica travel like 50 miles because they heard that Paul was there preaching and they go on and they continue their riot and uh, he eventually has to leave the city but this is where I think the chapter gets very very interesting because we're going to change cultural climates like 100 to 100 percent right now so what happens, they, he leaves Berea and he jumps on a boat, but this time shows up in the city of Athens. A city, no doubt, that he had heard so much about as a kid. This is the home of like modern philosophy, right? You got Socrates and Plato, all these awesome philo- philosophers hung out in Athens. This city was epic. This was a little after its heyday, but... 
I want to show you, kind of walk through this last half of the chapter and what Paul does in Athens. There's so much to learn as we continue this missionary masterclass. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said he's preaching uh, foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So I love this, guys. First thing I want to point out, verse 16, Paul was waiting for his friends. He'd just gotten to Athens. There's many things in Athens to admire or to enjoy or to look at. But instead, what is Paul concerned with? We see that right away, Paul shows up in Athens and he's there for war. He's not viewing the city through the eyes of somebody who's just visiting for fun, but he's viewing the city through the eyes of a missionary. Again, not enamored with architecture or, or culture, but instead, what does he see? His spirit is provoked within him, verse 16, as he saw that the city was full of idols. Guys, he's more concerned with the spiritual climate of the city than for enjoying, him, <laughs> enjoying the city that he's undoubtedly heard so much about in his life. So this is what's cool, guys. Obviously, Vacation is not a bad thing. It is a blessing from the Lord. Um, but it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that everything in our life is for our comfort. And every place we go, we just need to experience the culture and eat new foods. And that's the best reason to travel the world. Well, I think right here we see on this missionary journey that no matter where we're at, I want to be thinking about the spiritual climate of the city. I want to be thinking about the people that live there. I want my heart to be provoked within me when I see idolatry. And I don't see a lot of churches. And I don't see a lot of people following Jesus. And that can be abroad, but it also can be here, right? Missionaries in our own zip code. It challenges me when I'm, when I'm playing basketball with friends or I'm downtown at a shop or a store, or I'm eating food. Am I even thinking about people's salvation? Am I even thinking about the person eating right next to me? Because I'll tell you right now, my mind can so easily just be distracted by a million other things that I'm not even worried about the person's soul that's right behind me in line at a Starbucks. And if I'm honest, I think... Maybe that has to do with not wanting to be like the super overzealous weird Christian that's like talking about Jesus at every step of the way. You don't want to be that annoying one. You know what I'm saying? But I think if many of us met Paul today, I would think he's pretty abrasive. Um, I think we're, we love to be loved. right? We want people to like us. But again, the gospel's very divisive. So in Christ, if we're proclaiming the gospel in boldness and in truth by the power of the Holy Spirit, some people are going to love us. Like right here in this room, look around. These are, this is a family, right? 
Any one of us, if you're in need of something or you, you, like, you need help, you can come to somebody in this room and we're a family. We've been adopted into this, into this like, relationship, this family of God, and we're brothers and sisters. And so we look around, we're like, oh, I'm in desperate need. Can you help? And we're like, yeah, absolutely, I love you because I know the love of Jesus that he has for me and for you. But then if we leave this building, right, I want to be of good repute. We need to have good reputations, but man... Sometimes I think we shy away from proclaiming the gospel or shy away from opportunities to share with people because we don't want to be weird. We want people to like us or we don't want to make people angry or upset. But I think we're seeing right here that when the gospel is proclaimed, like people go two ways. And if there's a riot, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. More has to do with the hardness of somebody's heart. So, Verse 19, they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I have a story to tell you guys as it relates to verse 21. I have a good friend, my best friend, lifelong best friend. His name is Robbie. Uh, if you're in my high school ministry or junior high, like most all the crazy adventurous things I've ever done in my life, Robbie is involved, okay? Because I was the guy that like followed him into the sketchiest situations. It was not a good thing most of the time. But as one of the pastors in Ashland says, Zav, he says, you got to do cool things. If you don't do cool things, you won't have cool stories. If you don't have cool stories, your grandkids will hate you. So there it is. (laughs) Robbie and I grew up in the same church. And so did a couple of my other friends, Dylan, Brett, a lot of really cool dudes. Our families all hung out, very much a setting like this. Um, But when I was in high school, I moved away to Puerto Rico for a year and a half, which was awesome. But I came back and there was a Christmas party that happened every year at Robbie's house. And I just remember kind of hanging out with my friends as I was back in California on on vacation and just kind of catching up with them, seeing how they've been doing, what they've been up to. And and I started to notice that they don't really seem like they're following hard after Christ anymore. Like they look like they've kind of gone in the wrong direction. And I remember, man, this night was so brutal. We're standing on his front lawn and it was me. And I thought a whole bunch of believer brothers and like four of them and all of a sudden I just felt attacked as one by one they told me that they didn't believe in this crap anymore and that their eyes had been opened or in that time the big word was enlightened they'd been enlightened to new truth that ultimately told them that Jesus the Bible the gospel was all wrong they had new revelation And now, instead of remembering that 
Uh, I was their brother that had grown up with them in church all the time. It felt like they were just attacking me. Like I felt cornered. I felt like a boxer in the corner of the ring just getting pummeled in the face by a bunch of friends that I thought were believers. But they're all saying, no, 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 we have something new. Mitch, are you willing to watch this video? And if you think, oh gosh, I remember what it was too. It was zeitgeist, okay? It's so funny when you look at like new age spiritual stuff new things come and then a year later everybody's like no that was dumb it's all about this now like this is the new thing or there's this book of Chinese proverbs and we're going to pray and meditate about like Robbie and a couple of my friends he's a believer now again I don't know how that all works but he loves Jesus but man I just remember they would go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing but here's what I found was similar between all the things that they would go to is that all the while they were following new religions or new thought processes or new books or new leaders but all that time they felt free to be their own lord and master and do whatever the heck they wanted to do. So it's funny that all this like chasing the newest thing and leaving Christ in the gospel and accountability behind was that they got to sin whenever the heck they wanted to and do whatever they wanted to at parties, with alcohol, with weed or with their girlfriend or whatever. They could do whatever they want and they didn't feel guilty about it anymore. They had been enlightened to new things. Think about that with the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there. They'd spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. As I was reading a commentary, Tony Marita said this, let us remember that the gospel is an old, old story. And if we change it, we strip it of its power. It is such a cool thing, not a lame thing, a cool thing to be part of such a long lineage of Jesus trusting, believing people. Thousands of years. What a rad history. We don't need something new, but instead we need to continue to cling to the truth of the gospel, cling to the scriptures, cling to Jesus, knowing that it is the truth. I'm not looking anymore. 2 Timothy 3, 7 says this, this little verse that's always stuck with me. Um, talks about people who are always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That was my friends in high school. Like, man, you already had the truth. Why are you out looking for more? We have the gospel. We hear it. We believe on Jesus and again cling to Jesus. So back to our story, guys. Paul is being brought to Areopagus, otherwise known as Mars Hill. And he's standing before all these philosophers and these deep thinkers, and they give him the floor, okay? I read in a commentary that a lot of these speeches at this place were multiple hours long, and we only get like 12 verses, so keep that in mind. But I just want to read a lot of this sermon before we talk about it. And this, I think... Uh, is something that we can learn a bunch from. And we're going to see differences between the way he approached the Jews in Thessalonica, the Jews in Berea, and now these pagan non-Jews that uh, worship all kinds of deities we're going to find. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For, and he quotes, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Wow. What a proclamation of God's character and God's nature. What a proclamation of truth. I just kind of dissected this a little bit. Here are some things that I saw that Paul declared. Okay? He declared to them at Areopagus that God is creator. Verse 24. He proclaimed that God is the Lord of all creation and he owns everything. Also verse 24. He talked about the omnipresence of God in verse 24. He talked about the self-sufficiency of God. Verse 25. He talked about God as the sustainer of life. Verse 25. And then he closes it with this brutally awesome statement. And he tells them that it's actually in this God that you formerly didn't know, but I'm telling him your name now. It's in him that you live, move, and have your very being. It's in him that you live and move and have your being. When I first got saved, and I'm not saying this is the only way to do it or the right way to do it. This is just what I did. I want to share my experiences with you. Not when I first got saved, but when I was like 18 years old, started taking the Bible seriously. I had a friend, his name is Stephen. And Stephen was a great help to me. In fact, I dropped out of college to help Stephen start a youth group and lead worship at a church. Okay, this is something that felt like the Lord called me to do. I might touch on this again later, but I, I sat under Stephen as an intern for a year and a half, and, and one of the things that Stephen did is pointed me to books like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which I know Jason is a big fan of, some, some guys have done studies of here, uh, Mark Driscoll's Doctrine book, I know Mark Driscoll's name, not as awesome around these circles as it once was, but it was a good book nonetheless, and what he did is pointed me to these books that systematically laid out what a Christian believes because the Bible teaches it, right? What is it that Orthodox Christians believe? What is it that the Bible teaches about God, man, the Holy Spirit, sin, right? It just categorized all these things. And to me, guys, it was extremely helpful because I knew that as I'm opening the Bible, whether it be here or with friends or with kids, I wanted to know that what I'm teaching is inside the boundaries of the Christian faith. And I know you're thinking like, wow, you didn't know that. Well, 
you can get some weird ideas out there, right? And a lot of people can use the Bible to teach something that actually isn't true. Just use it wrongly or take it out of context. So I just really wanted to have a solid framework, a solid foundation of Bible doctrine. So that again, when I'm sharing truths, I know that these are actually things that are taught in the Bible and... It helps me and it can help us to explain things maybe like Paul is doing here. Now, let me introduce something to you guys real quick. The Bible commentary, Tony Marita said this. He said that here we witness two different types of ministries. Okay, we have the synagogue ministry and then the marketplace ministry. The synagogue ministries where he goes in, there's a bunch of Jews that know the Bible. He opens the Bible, shows them that Jesus is the Christ from the scriptures. But then he goes to Areopagus and these fools don't know the Bible. So what does he do? He doesn't walk in there and be like, all right, guys, so listen, you know who King David is, right? Oh, you don't know who King David is? Okay, hold on. Hey, all right, you know the book of Exodus, right? When it talks about, and they're like, no, we don't know that either. We don't know anything. So what does he do? He takes truths that are found in the Bible and he communicates them in a way that these people can understand. And instead of the Bible, Old Testament being his point of contact with these, with these people, instead, what does he do? He quotes their own poets. He says, as I was walking around your city, I saw your altars to the unknown God. He, he like finds an end, finds a way to communicate and converse with these people. But it's a totally different philosophy and strategy than he used with the Jews. But it makes sense. So when you have this solid foundation of, of Bible doctrine, right, you know where it's at in the scriptures and you by all means open it up with people that don't know the Bible. I'm not saying that you should avoid the scriptures at all, but it's so easy to, to have these doctrines in your back pocket so you can bring them out in a way that people can understand when you're having a conversation with somebody, whether they know anything about the Bible or not. I would encourage you guys to study up on this stuff. So then you can make a proclamation as well about God's character and nature. And then check this out. Right after verse 28, this is where Paul kind of moves from philosophical debate to personal responsibility. This is where he moves from proclamation and he turns the focus, like all the focus is on God. He's declaring scriptural truths. He's still preaching Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he takes the focus and he says, all right, this is who God is. And he turns to the people and he's like, now you gotta figure out what you're gonna do about it. I'll read. Being then, verse 29, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Oof. That's heavy. I've told you things about God. You didn't know who he was. You had the altar, the inscription to the unknown God. 
now I've told you who he is, told you some things about him, and now you got to figure out what it is that you're going to do about it. Check out this quote. A.W. Tozer, my favorite author by far, says this, all the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together and at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God, that he is what he is like and what we as moral beings must do about him. Paul's like, you didn't know, now you know. And I'm not going to let you off the hook. you got to make a decision. You know who God is. I've told you what he's like. Now you must decide as moral beings what you're going to do about him. Are you going to resist? Are you going to push away? And Paul had just seen that in Thessalonica. Or are you going to repent and believe in faith and receive? What of these two things are you going to do with the truth that I've just presented to you? Guys, can I be honest? This is the hardest part of sharing the gospel. This is the hardest part. Like teaching camps, like kids camps and youth groups and seeing like new kids come to youth group or, or going to Crater High and, and we have this thing called Impact Club and there's people that come, we, we bring free pizza and then kids come and want the pizza and we're like, hey, you, you can eat it as long as you stay and hang out for a Bible study, right? So the easiest part of this is to proclaim things that are true about God. It's easy to open the scripture and be like, yeah, this is Jesus, this is what he did, this is who he is, this is the Bible, and God who loves the world died on a cross and rose from the grave, and anybody who believes in him can have eternal life. All right, let's pray, right? It's easy to like stop there, and and sometimes that's all that's required, but I don't know, there's something about giving somebody a choice, like shining the spotlight on their face and being like, okay, what are you going to do about it? This is what you've heard about God. Are you going to repent? Believe? There's a, there's a kid there. I'll, I'll leave him unnamed just, just in case he ever gets saved. I don't want him to get mad at me for using his name in a sermon illustration, but... Um, this kid is awesome. He comes every week to Impact Club at Crater. And he's dead honest with us. I only come for the pizza. We're like, praise God. We're glad you're here, buddy. We're glad you're here. And I'm not joking, dude. He'll sit down in his chair and he's got like a triple stack of pizza slices just chilling there in a napkin like he's not like being like he's not oh I don't want to take this because I'm not really here for the right reason no like he's like all free pizza just like I'm gonna steal it all forget these Christians and he just staunch atheist evolution he wants to talk about it all the time and this has been a really good exercise for me and my buddy Spencer is another youth pastor in town. We, we go together, and this has been the best exercise for us because we proclaim truth, and then all of a sudden, this kid raises his hand. It's like almost every single time. We're like, go ahead, buddy. It's like, 
how can you possibly say that this is the, and he's really smart too. I'm not really that smart. So I'm like, oh crap, Lord, help me, please, spirit, help me. (laughs) How can you say that, and me and Spencer look at each other, we're like, who's going to answer? Oh crap, (laughs) you know. But it is so cool because what happens is he ends up up asking question after question after question and we we give him the biblical response, right? We answer the question, but it's never enough. It's never enough. And like, I've just gotten so comfortable with going, hey, hold on, buddy, listen, listen. Here's the truth. I love you. Your heart is hard. We've told you all these things about God. You come to Impact Club, you've heard it, you've heard the truth that Jesus came and died and rose from the grave and he wants you to turn from sin and turn to him and you're not doing it and you just need to do it. It is so fun to be that bold and especially to kids. It's like easier. If I'm talking to a 60-year-old man, I'm like, yes, sir, um, you do whatever you want. But you bring people to that, that place where there's a crisis. They got to they decide one way or the other. And then we get to tell them, hey, whatever you decide, whatever you choose, I love you. I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm not going to reject you. You're still welcome to come here. Eat as much pizza as you want. Our pizza bill is outrageous. <laughs> but in Acts... We see, as, is, as has been the pattern, right, when he talks about the resurrection in verse 32, said, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst in verse 34, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were, uh-oh, <laughs> Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what happens guys? Well, some believed and some didn't. Some believed and some didn't. Here's what's cool. Whether it was Paul in the synagogue opening the Old Testament or Paul Areopagus or us now, right? We proclaim and preach the gospel hopefully relying on the Spirit And then what happens? Well, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, right? Some people see that he's the rock, the foundation. They put their trust in him. And then other people see the same rock and they stumble over it and they don't want anything to do with it. Right, stumbling block to some. But to those who believe that that firm foundation. So that's our chapter Um, And I'm glad I have 10 minutes left on that clock because I want to go back to a verse. um, I want to go back to verse 6. Now just keep your finger there. I want to go back to verse 6. I want to end on that because I really do think, uh, and this is debated, but I really do think that we've just seen a master class in like evangelism and a missionary missionaries uh, going overseas to new cities. I think, I think Paul did an amazing job. And the, the people noticed this too, right? The, the, as the gospel was spreading, as Paul was going from city to city, people started to hear about it. Rumors started to spread about these people who were preaching and teaching Jesus. And in verse 6, 
I'll read it again. It says, when they could not find them. Again, this is the Jews looking for Paul and company. When they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These world who have turned the world upside down. What did the people hear about Paul and Silas and Timothy? That they were flipping the world upside down. Like they were changing the world. Now, granted, from their perspective, this turning the world upside down probably wasn't a good thing, but we know now, like, they really were being used by God to turn the world upside down, and it was a great thing. But here's here's what's interesting um, about this. When when we started this this teaching, I talked about Steph Curry and Gordon Ramsay and Serena Williams and Carlos Santana and Steve Martin, all these masters of what they do, that they get to teach people what it is that they've learned over the thousands and thousands and thousands of hours that they've practiced this one craft, right? But I don't want us to fall into the trap of reading Acts 17, the rest of Acts, and saying, oh, they were turning the world upside down. Yeah, of course they were turning the world upside down. It was Paul. It was Silas. It was Timothy. They're legends of the faith. Of course they were world changers. Of course God was using them. They're like giants in our world. Of course it was Peter that was walking on water. It's Peter. He's awesome. I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that. Because if you read through the scriptures, you'll see that Peter and Paul and Silas and Timothy and the church in Corinth and all these early Christians, they didn't think that they were awesome. In fact, they were people just like you and me. I want to I read some, some scriptures for you guys. Um, First, I'll read what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, oh, Paul, legend of the faith. Chapter 12, verse 7 says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, this is a verse a lot of you probably know, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I want to pause right here and, and praise God for this verse specifically, but it, because it encourages me. Yeah, I don't know if you're anything like me, but m- myself, like I personally view and and see with most clarity my shortcomings, my failures, and my weaknesses. I see those way more than I see my strengths. Is anybody else like me in this room? Okay, for those of you not raising your hand, you're either not paying attention or maybe you have a pride issue that you need to repent of, okay? (laughs) I see my weaknesses way more than my strengths, but this is good for me to know because I need to be reminded that those weaknesses that I have, those weaknesses that you have, those weaknesses that Paul had, they don't disqualify us from being used for the kingdom of God. Instead, they're a backdrop against which the glory of Almighty God can shine brightest. And it's all part of his plan. I'll finish it real quick. Paul says this, Therefore I will boast 
all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. What about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? This is also a life verse for Mitch. Chapter 1, verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Who are these Christians that God used to change the entire world? They were foolish, they were weak, they were low, they were despised, and they rejoiced, apparently, and were content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities because they understood something. They were on a mission from God. It had nothing to do with them. The plan of God redeeming man kind never rested on the strength wisdom and grit of human beings to accomplish it or get it done it's always been God's thing these people knew it these people knew it and I don't want us to miss that I don't want to read this and be like oh they're so awesome no they were just like you and me I read this quote that rocked me this last week it said this it's not great men who change the world but weak men in the hands of a great God It's not great men who change the world, but weak men in the hands of a great God. And I'm telling you, I am right there. I'm not trying to put them on the spot, but this morning when we showed up for worship, good friend Jesse Peck playing bass today, we're praying beforehand, and he's like, God, we suck. <laughs> and you are awesome. And I'm like, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> That is so true. It's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me. It should be encouraging to you because if God can use a Paul and if God can use a Peter and if God can use a Silas and I promise you, if God can use me, then he can definitely use you guys in greater ways and greater measures than you can ever imagine, guys. So many times when we think about God using us, we're like, no, 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 I'm not good enough. Well, that's the point. Oh, I'm not equipped. I can't speak. Remember Moses when God's like, I'm going to use you to deliver Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He's like, but Lord, I can't talk. I'm not good at talking. God's like, no, 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 I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you words to speak so guys be encouraged that these these dudes and these women this early church that changed the world they they were not that awesome but in hebrews 11 i'm almost done in fact evan why don't you come on up dude and uh we'll start prepping to close out and worship but in hebrews 11 it it talks about all these believers that have given their life for the faith. And there's this little line that, that talks about these believers and says, these are the people of whom the world was not worthy. 
Like these are awesome men and women who have given everything for the sake of the gospel. Rejoicing in their weaknesses, humbled before God, not thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. We should take all these things into consideration. But, but what they did do and what the scriptures encourage us to do is to trust Jesus, to abide in Jesus, to rely on him every single step of the way, to love, to serve, to obey, and to labor with everything that we have. If you remember Jesus, when he talked about, when he talked about following him, right, he said, what is it, what's required of you to follow after me? He says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. It's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you everything you have. And the people were like, I'm nothing, but I'm in. Let's go. So there was a willingness that these people had to just say, whatever it is you want me to do, God, you're God. I'm not. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey whatever it is, no matter the cost. I think Romans 12.1 is the perfect conclusion to this exhortation it says i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship heritage if you've been like giving jesus half your life you're like i really like this part so god don't touch this part but you can have all this part that's fine it'll be like a 50 50 deal and no like no 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 if you've been standing on the fence you got one foot over here in the church with jesus and one one foot in the world and you're unwilling to just dive face first into the depths of who God is with reckless abandon saying I'm going to follow you no matter what it costs me I'm all in if you're not in that spot I would encourage you like Romans 12 to present yourself everything you are as a living sacrifice to Jesus as spiritual worship don't hold anything back because that willing heart is something that God can use right Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple and there was smoke and it was shaking and all this crazy stuff. And then God says, who's going to go for me? Isaiah's like, I'll go. They were willing and obedient. Guys, part of being all in with Jesus is understanding that when Jesus went to the cross, he took our sin. He took our sin as you guys know, we still wrestle. There's the flesh and the spirit and they're at war within us. And so every day we fall short of the glory of God and we screw up and we don't measure up. And we get to come to the table of communion and we get to come and remember the cross of Christ. And again, part of following hard after God is day by day, not holding on to that sin, that secret sin, not letting anything hinder us or weigh us down. But instead, you have an opportunity right here to just come and lay that all down before him too, to just say, all right, God, look, you already know this stuff because you see everything, but I've been hiding this from you and I need to be freed of this because I want to be all in. And if you can use a wretch like me to change people's eternities, if you can use someone like me to preach, if you can use someone like me to serve, that somebody's eternity might might be changed forever, then God, I want to do that. I'm willing. I don't have anything to offer except for myself. So here I am, everything laid bare before you. I'm not hiding anything or holding anything back. This is your free opportunity to do that. So we're going to sing 
two more songs. We want to open up communion for you guys to come here and remember the broken body of Jesus. Remember his perfect life. Remember his blood that was shed for you. The blood that cleanses you so that you're no longer like covered with scarlet sin, but you're washed white as snow and to proclaim to yourself again that the victory in your life, the victory in everything belongs to Jesus and the victory over sin and death belongs to him as well. And that's the only reason we get to walk with him, the only reason we get to be used by him anyways and it's the message we continue to proclaim. So as Evan plays and sings, you guys are free to come and take communion. And as we've said often at this church, come and do some business with God. It's your free opportunity. I'm gonna pray. God, thank you for this master class. But Lord, Paul would have said, and he did, that there's no way he could have done any of that without your grace and your strength and your spirit. God, right now, Lord, in this room, I pray that you would empower your people and humble your people so that we would realize that we have nothing either. There's no hope for us to carry this good news to the ends of the earth without you. So God, help us to rely on you. Help us to stay low. Give us willing hearts to be used by you, whatever the cost. Help us to obey. God, use us. And then right now, God, remind us of your grace as we come to the table and worship you. Remember that perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus, we love you so much. We pray this in your name. Amen.